Listen to this podcast. You may have guessed, I am the Podman. No, you're not, said little Nicola. I am the Podman will take a magical look at podcasts about the Beatles and review them for accuracy, production value, and entertainment value, and then answer the question, is this podcast worth listening to? As always, I'm recording in studio number two at Shabby Road Studios. Number two... Number two, number two, which when turned back to front, sounds suspiciously like, turn me on, Padman, turn me on, Padman, turn me on, Padman. And yes, I know that would sound much better in stereo, but George Martin insists that the first four podcasts be in mono. Thank you for listening, and please don't forget to like and subscribe preferably before you listen to the show. Thanks again for listening. A splendid time is guaranteed for all. Hello, my name is Dave Dexter, and for some reason you're listening to I Am The Podman, a Beatles podcast review. This is episode two, The Podman's Second Podcast. Okay, that was great. Thank you. I I named it, you know. Yeah, thanks. Good day. I, I don't really care for rock and roll or podcasts. Right. Cheers. They used to call me Poindexter. Right. Get out. Turn me on, Podman. Hello, Fab fans. It's your favorite potty mouth, the Podman. Ready to ring out the old ring in the new with a quick look back at 2023. So I was talking, or the 2023 equivalent of actually conversing, with Dennis from Dinner with Greedo, who had a vidcast that's typically a short video version of a podcast where somebody fills their room with every Beatle collectible they can muster so they can flex and show what a fab expert they are, and then talk about something for 20 minutes while dropping hints that they have unnamed sources with inside Inside information. information. I hasten to point out that Dinner with Greedo doesn't do any of these things, and Dennis actually has a very funny, informative, and interesting vidcast. By the way, if they aren't called vidcasts, I apologize. But I also, here and now, 
wish to copyright the term vidcast. Hey, if they can copyright three-peat. Anyway, Dinner with Greedo recently had a vidcast entitled 2023, A Bad Year for Beatles Fans. I pointed out that after Paul's announcement of a new Beatles song in June, the news was full of Beatles talk for the remainder of the year. The cheeky Macca accidentally said the song was made with AI. And that really got everyone to share their typically worthless opinions. Then there was release of the song itself on November 2nd. Everyone and their mothers was on media talking about it. The remixes of the Red and Blue just served to stoke the fire, for better or worse. That alone gave us a Beatle-filled 2023. But wait, 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 there's there's more! more. Okay, so sadly enough, we didn't get the things we should have. A Rubber Soul Deluxe Edition, a Mind Games Deluxe, although that's apparently coming in June of 2024, But if you believe that, I've got a deluxe edition of somewhere in New York City to sell you. No, really, I really want to get rid of that. Just kidding. No, really. A deluxe band on the run would have been nice, as would have a deluxe living in the material world. And quite inexplicably, another 50th anniversary set, Ringo's exceptional album Ringo. But we did get Ringo's Rewind Forward on CD, vinyl, and cassette, no less. We got two of my favorites, Sarcasm is my middle name, yellow vinyl versions of Stop and Smell the Roses, and Old Wave. And Ringo has also completed a new book entitled Beats and Threads, published through Julian's Auctions. And I said, no, 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 no. We did get a few new Dark Horse releases and a half-speed master of the half-hearted Red Rose Speedway. But the best new merch, other than now and then, was in print. Several interesting books came our way in 2023, including Paul's 1964 Eyes of the Storm and the amended release of the lyrics and softcover. Does that mean I have to buy it again? Oh well, at least my 52 versions of McCartney 3 complete the set. Wait, what's that you say? Another aside, as a devout Beatles fan, I find the million variations of a fairly wretched album, McCartney 3, the outrageous variations of the mostly awful Egypt Station, and the disgustingly priced crate of George's fantastic All Things Must Pass, as embarrassing as Beatle-branded ice chests, aprons, and cookie jars. Okay, rant over. Back to books. While we didn't get Lewison's second volume, we did get Bruce Spizer's The Beatles' Please Please Me to With The Beatles. This continues Bruce's fine series dedicated to Beatle albums. Since the book was under my tree, I haven't really had a chance to get into it in depth, but if it's anything like Bruce's other volumes, it will be chocked with new and fascinating information. Speaking of Messrs. Lewison and Spizer, here's a brief anecdote. I had the pleasure of meeting and spending some time with Mark and Bruce at Ken Womack's, more about Ken soon, Awesome White Album Seminar in 2018. The following year, I was putting together notes for a lecture, and one of the topics was a bit hard for me to pin down. So I did what anyone would do. I emailed the two men I consider to be the world's biggest Beatle experts. I believe it was the brilliant author Kurt Vonnegut, who, when referring to Mark Twain, said, 
He was our America's Shakespeare. Well, I feel that Bruce Spicer is our America's Mark Lewison. Anyway, I emailed them both and I got an immediate response from Mark Lewison. Now you know who's to blame for the delay in volume two. Mark wrote me a perfect explanation and answer to my question. I also got a response from Bruce. His was a bit different. He wrote, Your answer is too complex to answer in an email. Can you call me this Saturday to discuss? Yeah. I called him around 11 a.m. that Saturday, and we talked until about 4.30 that afternoon. The graciousness of these two men, who undoubtedly have far more important things to do, speaks volumes about not only them, but also most hardcore Beatle fans. If you haven't already purchased the Beatles' Please Please Me to With the Beatles, hit pause, log on to Bruce's site, beetle.net, and do yourself a favor. I mentioned Ken Womack earlier. We can't forget his Living the Beatles legend, The Untold Story of Mal Evans. This was also under my Christmas tree, so as of this recording, I'm only on page 27. But knowing the long, strange trip Mal's diaries took, I am as amazed that we got them in 2023 as, oh, I don't know, maybe a new Beatles song. When I finish the book, you can bet it will get a review on the Media City segment of the podcast. Other books released in 2023 were Philip Norman's Harrison bio, Italian author Luca Parassi's Music is Ideas, Tony King's The Tastemaker, and a couple from Katie Kapurich, Blackbird, and The Beatles and Humor which I'm very interested in reading. We also had a physical DVD of The Lost Weekend, A Love Story, which I've not yet viewed. However, I am looking forward to seeing it. Apple TV gave us the three-part series, John Lennon, Murder Without a Trial, which I will review later in the show. So while we didn't get some of the things we may have been expecting, 2023 did see the release of, among other things, The Mal Evans Diaries, in a manner of speaking, and Now and Then, the last Beatles song. I don't know about you, but I certainly can't complain. And remember, kids, watch Dinner with Credo, Andrew Milton's Parlogram Vidcast, and listen to Chris Shaw's I Am the Egg Pod podcast. And you know that can't be bad. You know you should be glad. Time to take a look at one of the top Beatles podcasts to come out of America, Robert Rodriguez's Something About the Beatles. Today I'll be reviewing episode 272, Born at the Right Time with Ray Connolly. 272 podcast, It Boggles the Mind. By the way, I should point out, when I review a podcast, I'm only reviewing that episode, not the entire run of any given podcast. Something About the Beatles started in 2013 with hosts Richard Buskin and Robert Rodriguez. Richard left the podcast in 2017, and we'll hear more about Richard on a future episode or episodes. Robert Rodriguez is, of course, the award-winning author of numerous books, including his 2012 Revolver, How the Beatles Reimagined Rock and Roll. I've always thought that a more accurate title would have been Revolver, how the Beatles invented rock music, but that's a discussion for another time, and quite frankly, Robert didn't ask my advice. He also wrote Solo in the 70s, which is also a fine volume. 
Among the many guests that have appeared on Something About the Beatles, from now on referred to as Satby, guests like Peter Jackson, May Pang, Nancy Andrews, Mike McCartney, Jenny Boyd, Alan Parsons, Chris Thomas, Ann Wilson, Mark Lewison, Walter Everett, and many other amazing guests. Satby is the pantheon of Beatles podcasts. This episode, Robert's guest is Ray Connolly. Ray Connolly was born in 1940 in Lancashire. He started his career in journalism as a graduate trainee at the Liverpool Daily Post before moving to the London Evening Star, where he interviewed the likes of the Beatles and a slew of other less important people. Ray also wrote the screenplays for That'll Be the Day and its sequel, Stardust. Ray was apparently scheduled to interview John Lennon on December 9, 1980. Ray's been the sole guest on three other episodes of Something About the Beatles, episode number 249, episode 177, and episode 173. He's also been on several panel discussions. The show opens with the Quarrymen's 1958 recording of Buddy Holly's That'll Be the Day. We then hear the adopted theme of Satby, the Corgis, of course, former Stackridge members, 2006 song Something About the Beatles, a remake of the 1999 Stackridge track. Now, at the outset, Ray Connolly is a fascinating guest. Probably that's why he's been on so many times. But he's so fascinating that the podcast pretty much completes itself. That's not to say that Robert Rodriguez isn't a very good interviewer. Just the opposite is true. He's polite, but pursues lines of questioning when appropriate. He virtually never steps on his guest responses. And just when I think to myself, oh, I wish he'd ask about this, that, or the other thing, he does. Anyway, Ray Connolly talks about his lengthy and close relationship with John, interviewing Elvis, Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan, and Dusty Springfield, among others. Ray recounts that in 1969, John told him he was leaving the Beatles, but at John's request, he kept it under wraps until Paul's statement page in the McCartney album and the Daily Mirror's Paul Quits the Beatles headline. So even though that wasn't what Paul said, or intended to say, the Daily Mirror reporter, Don Short, is the man who actually broke the Beatles up. That should please the Yokoites. Short, who was the Mirror's showbiz columnist, was about to leave for the evening, putting on his coat and getting ready to walk out the door, when he got a telephone call on April the 9th, 1970, stupid bloody Thursday, a voice that he recognized as someone who worked with the Beatles told him, it's all over, the Beatles are breaking up. Who was that Beatles confidant who had misrepresented the McCartney Press Q&A so magnificently? Perhaps we'll never know. As far as Paul, he told Keith Badman, I never intended it to mean I'd quit. It was a misunderstanding. Okay, I'm not going to do the horrible impression of Paul McCartney that most other podcast people do. 
I never intended it to mean I... Yeah, I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> the discussion then moves on to Ray's writing the script for That'll Be the Day with inspiration from Harry Nielsen's song, 1941. 1941. But who could tell in 46 if the two were to survive? Well, the years were passing quickly, but not fast enough for him. So he closed his eyes till 55, then he opened them up again. The film was funded by Ronco in the U.S. because they wanted to release a 50s heavy soundtrack. The 50s nostalgia was going crazy at that time. Since the movie takes place at a holiday camp, just to get his input, Ray met with Ringo and Neil Aspinall at Apple, both of whom had worked at Butlins. After talking, Ringo rang them and said he wanted a part in the movie. He declined reprising the role for the sequel Stardust, as he felt it was too close to the Beatles' story. Robert asked Ray about his interviewing style, and Ray divulges that he got his most important interviewing advice from the beautiful Marcia Hunt. They then talk about Mal Evans and what a wonderful and soft-spoken guy he was. Jim McCartney was also remembered as being an extremely nice gentleman. Ray relates that George Martin referred to both John and Paul as geniuses. The episode ends with Ray talking about some of his Desert Island Discs. As most of you know, Desert Island Discs is a show where various celebrities are asked to pick eight recordings that they would take were they cast away on a desert island. Well, if I were to do Desert Island podcasts, Satby would certainly be on that list. While the number of ads and their haphazard placement was rather annoying, I'm sure Robert had nothing to do with their placement. And in the high finance world of podcasting, it's a testament to the level that Satby has achieved that advertisers will buy time on a Beatles podcast. While there are some minor audio technical problems on occasion, they probably only would be noticeable to audiophile types. Read hardcore Beatle fans. So my final verdict? Of course something about the Beatles is worth listening to. In fact, I consider it a must-listen, and the host Robert Rodriguez definitely does know something about the Beatles. So I feel a little bit bad about talking about the number of commercials on Satby, so unfortunately, it is a case of the pot calling the kettle black, and I've got to take a little commercial break. Now, word from our sponsors. Is that Ringo Starr advertising his new album, Goodnight Vienna, on Apple Records and Tapes? It certainly is, John. Hi, you look so wonderful. Oh, thank you. I was born in the north of England. I was raised in a oh, dream come true. My one, my one, only you. Goodnight Vienna, on Apple Records and Tapes. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure, Ringo. 
Remember those fabulous 60s, the marches, the beans, the draft card burnings, and best of all, the music? Well, now Apple House has collected the finest of those songs on one album called Golden Protest, performed by the original artists who made them famous. You'll thrill to Society's Child by Janicean, Pleasant Valley Sunday by the Monkees, What Have They Done to the Rain by the Searchers, In the Ghetto by Elvis Presley, Silent Night 7 O'Clock News by Simon and Garfunkel, and who can ever forget this all-time classic? Yes, it's Barry Maguire's immortal Eve of Destruction. And of course, my own Masters of War, all for the incredibly low price of $3.95. And if you order now, you'll also receive a treasury of acid rock featuring Vanilla Fudge, Blue Chair, Frigid Pink, Moby Grape, The Electric Prunes, Jefferson Airplane, Lothar and the Hand People, to name but a few. Plus, as part of this special limited offer, you'll also get the best of the supergroups with Traffic, Cream, Blind Faith, Ginger Baker's Air Force, and many, many others. Yes, this is a collector's dream, Golden Protest, plus two fabulous 60s albums, all for only $3.95. If you were to purchase these selections separately, they'd cost you hundreds of dollars, and many cannot be found anywhere at any price. Well, it's time for my boot heels to be wandering. But here's something that'll tell you how you can get this amazing record package. Here's how to order this amazing record package. Just send $3.95 and check your money order plus your name and address to Apple House Box 70K South Bend, Indiana. Once again, that's $3.95 and check your money to Apple House Box 70 Do it today. Listen to this television commercial. Whatever gets you through the listening to John Lennon's new album, Walls and Bridges. Thank you, Ringo. It's a pleasure, John. Well, that was fun, but apparently you want it darker. We are going to have to go to a darker place, but hey, it's reality. Now it's time for a feature on the show that we call Media City.
Today on Media City, we look at the three-part series from Apple TV, John Lennon, Murder Without a Trial. John Lennon, Murder Without a Trial made its premiere on December the 6th, 2023 on Apple TV. I must say it's a bit odd seeing an Apple original at the start of each episode. The series is narrated by Kiefer Sutherland and is presented in three 30 to 40 minute episodes. In addition to the usual talking heads, the show tells us that witnesses will be speaking for the very first time. The bizarrely Soviet agitprop opening is, I think, very, if not inappropriate, very unattractive to look at, and we get to see it three times. While I'm complaining, the editing of all the episodes is frankly dishonest to me and would be confusing to someone not as familiar with the source material. Scenes of John singing on the Mike Douglas show intercut with hysterical fans from Shea Stadium give the wrong impression, and unfortunately, this is repeated several times throughout the series. The other problem, something that I find very distasteful, is I think we get to see every photo ever taken of the murderer. Episode 1 is entitled, The Last Day. It starts with the narration, In the late 1970s, John Lennon retreated from the public eye, where he shut himself away. We know this generalization is mostly untrue, and it's a shame that the show carries water for this myth. We skip to Lori Kay talking about her December 8th interview with John, his last interview. Let's try and make the 80s good. Prophetically, John talked about what we would call today identity politics. We're broken up into fractured pieces, countries, sexes, races. It's a joke. In an off-quoted line from this, his last interview, John heartbreakingly says, I consider that my art won't ever be finished until I'm dead and buried, and I hope that's a long, long time. The concierge of the Dakota, Jay Hastings, is interviewed, explaining that he's telling his story publicly for the first time, because time's passed. Dakota's doorman, Jay Manny, is also interviewed. He remembers a dumpy guy hanging around the entrance to the Dakota that afternoon, as fans always did. But Manny thought he looked out of place. And just some housekeeping. The name of the dumpy guy will never be uttered on this podcast. I will only refer to him as the murderer, an insulting title for a human stain. John left the Dakota at 4.30 to go to the studio. Ironically, he signed some autographs and headed off. Producer Jack Douglas recounts how positive and up John was and how much he was inspired by Sean. That night, after mixing Walking on Thin Ice, John left the studio and said to Jack Douglas, I'll see you in the morning, 9 a.m. New York cabbie Richard Peterson was dropping off a fare at the Dakota and pulled up right behind John's limo. When John got out, Peterson saw the murderer and heard him call out, John Lennon, and shoot. At first, Peterson thought they were filming a movie. Concierge J. Hastings remembers John staggering past him, saying, I'm shot, I'm shot. Doorman J. Manny recalls seeing J. Hastings covered in blood, and then he saw John. I will say that seeing both of these gentlemen, both probably tough New Yorkers in their late 60s, get overcome with emotion when talking about this horrible night 43 years ago, was withstayed with me from this otherwise not-so-memorable show. It's heartbreaking. NYPD's Peter Cullen was the first officer on the scene. Officer Herb Frankenhofer 
was next on the scene. He approached the victim and looks for a pulse and realizes it's John Lennon. Due to the severity of his injuries, they put him immediately into the police car and took him to Roosevelt Hospital. Interviews with the nurses and doctors reveal that they were unaware at first who they were working on. Eventually, they realized it was John Lennon. Despite their efforts, after about 45 minutes, they declared John dead. One of the ER nurses said, After they called it and we walked out of that room, the Muzak was playing Imagine. As the news spread, and ironically, Howard Cosell told the world of John's passing, the crowds of mourning began descending on the Dakota, and in fact, crowds were gathering all over the world. The episode then moves on to the arrest and questioning of the murderer. Episode 2, The Investigation. This episode starts with Elliot Mintz recalling stepping over the police tape, broken glass, and John's bloodstain on the entrance to the Dakota. Rough stuff. The international press descended on New York to get information on the murderer and the murderer. When asked if he understood what he had done, the murderer replied, Yes, I killed myself. I'm John Lennon. The show moved on to talking about Catcher in the Rye, which always struck me as being an indictment of adolescent thinking. The police describe how the murderer had left items in the hotel room in which he stayed in a manner to provide some clues to his twisted thinking. A placemat with a picture from The Wizard of Oz, an eight-track tape of Runt, The Ballad of Todd Rundgren, a Bible open to the Gospel of St. John, and a few photos. We learn that the murderer's first attorney quit after a couple days. Ringo and Barbara are shown visiting the Dakota. They arrive at a service entrance unnoticed, but then it appears when they leave, they leave through the front entryway and have to make their way through a mob of mourners. Very strange. They talk a bit about possible conspiracies and the illegal surveillance of John by the disgraced Nixon administration. This mostly treads old ground, however. There is some interesting talk about MKUltra, a CIA experiment in which unsuspecting people were used in mind control experiments. We see Dr. Milton Klein, an expert in hypnosis, who was involved in this illegal program. Remember his name. Because Dr. Klein visited the murderer in prison and became a part of his defense team. Interesting. We then get to hear from the murderer's wife's attorney, who suggested she have a press conference. Now this is strange. She said she was sorry that John Lennon had to die. What a strange way of putting it. I have no sympathy for the murderer's wife. This is not in the show, but she says as soon as she heard John had been shot, she knew her husband of 18 months was the murderer. How did she know? Well, a couple of months prior, the unemployed murderer came home from a trip to New York and told her he was going to kill John. He even acquired a gun. Now, gentle listeners, let's just suppose your spouse comes home from a trip with a newly acquired gun and tells you they were going to kill a famous celebrity but got cold feet. Would you call the police? How about when your unemployed spouse tells you they are returning to the city 6,000 miles away where this celebrity lives? Would you call the police then? There's something evil and vile here. While I have no idea if the show attempted to get a present-day interview with the murderer's wife, I do notice that on December 26th of this year, she was guest on a podcast entitled Women Worth Knowing. 
Apparently, she's thinking of writing a book. Glad you're looking to make a few bucks off of this. Just disgusting. But back to the show. The murderer was found competent to stand trial, and his attorneys began to angle for the insanity play. They show the vigil in Central Park. They note that in the crowd of thousands, one attendee also has a copy of Catcher in the Rye in his pocket. His name was John Hinckley Jr. Episode 3, The Trial. We get to hear from a member of the defense team, David Suggs, who seems to have a very cavalier attitude about the heinous act his client committed and a rather dismissive attitude about John Lennon. On the other hand, we hear from the state prosecutor, Kim Hography, who, like myself, announces he will not use the murderer's name and only refer to him as the defendant. The episode spends a great deal of time on the argument rational versus irrational, with defense attorney Suggs apparently unable to understand the difference between irrational and just plain stupid. They run through the sob story of the murderer's childhood and drug use, and we hear from Jessica Blankenship, an early girlfriend of the murderer who met him when she was 16 in 1971. She stated that the murderer was an excellent guitar player who really loved the Beatles, until John's more popular than Jesus comment. So I gotta call BS. If the murderers stopped loving the Beatles due to this 1966 statement, that's five years before she even met the murderer. Hmm. On June 22, 1981, the murderer's trial begins. The crowds gather, but the trial never happens. The murderer pleads guilty. He claims that God told him to do it. A psychiatric evaluator who had nothing to do with the case makes the brain-dead statement, his attorney said he was insane. I don't know why the judge would say he wasn't. The judge isn't a mental health professional. Well, psychiatric evaluator, neither are the defense attorneys. The qualified psychiatrist evaluated him and determined he was competent to stand trial. The defense attorney Suggs relates that the murderer had a psychiatric episode in July of 1981, as if to confirm that the murderer was insane conveniently forgetting that July 1981 is of no consequence. Sanity on December 8, 1980 is the legal issue at hand. The murderer was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. Hopefully he will rot there. So when I review anything on my podcast, I commit to watch it, listen to it, read it, or whatever, twice. Once as a Beatle fan, and then again as a reviewer. The first time I watched the three episodes of John Lennon, Murder Without a Trial, I thought that other than a few tidbits of information that I didn't previously know, the series was fairly bad. But now that I've watched it a second time, I've changed my mind. It's not fairly bad. It's horrible. Aside from the sympathetic way the wife-beating murderer is portrayed, many of the peripheral interviews contain utterances of such extreme stupidity just thinking about them infuriates me. The show has taken an event that had a huge effect on many of our lives and soft-pedaled it to seemingly make us feel sorry for the vilest among us. So the real question is, can I recommend it? Well, I guess I haven't left much of a mystery there. While there are some new and interesting facts presented, I've kind of told you what those were in this review. The Dakota employees, the NYPD officers, the detective the staff of the Roosevelt Hospital, are all fascinating to hear from, and my heart goes out to all of them, still haunted 
by what they witnessed 43 years ago. But no, unless you want to take one of your worst memories and relive it in a poorly produced, dishonestly edited, and visually unpleasant three-episode marathon, no, it's a visual equivalent of the lousy James Patterson book from a couple years ago. Skip it. A better use of your time would be to rewatch the 1988 Imagine John Lennon documentary by Andrew Solt. As one reviewer said, there is a tremendous power to this film. It has humor, poignancy, tragedy, and a sweetness that is hard to resist, kind of like the genius it portrays. I don't want to discuss this subject any more than I already have, but there is a little addendum that I feel I need to make, something I forgot to talk about uh, during the review of the show. Um, it wasn't in the show, it wasn't mentioned in the show, but I'm curious about it and I want to know if any of you gentle listeners have any idea about this. Apparently, after leaving the hospital, after learning that John had passed away, Jack Douglas returned to the recording studio that night where he wiped a tape of John. And I'm very curious if anyone knows or if Jack Douglas has ever spoken about what it was that he wiped. Now, I have a friend who's an acquaintance of Jack Douglas, and I said, hey, ask him about that. He did, and apparently got a very non-committal response. In fact, I think Jack Douglas might have said he didn't remember what he wiped. So, if you know something about this, please feel free to shoot me a text or make a comment on uh, one of the sites. Um, I'm, I'm interested in knowing. Why? Because I'm interested in knowing. Thanks. It's time to review the podcast entitled, Screw It! We're just going to talk about the Beatles. A listener suggested I review this podcast, which I admit, as far as I can remember, I've not listened to in the past. But since my listener said it was usually very funny, I decided to give it a go. Screw it, we're just gonna talk about the Beatles. Hello, this is a podcast. Uh, the name of this podcast is Screw It. We're just going to talk about the Beatles. Now, some might say, hey, that's a bad title. It's too long. But I say it's a great title because it is accurate in both content and tone. Content. On this podcast, we are just going to talk about the Beatles. And tone, that phrase screw it, really gets across the fact that we don't have any good reason to do this. We're just going to do it anyway. Uh, my name is Will Hines. I am the creator and host of this podcast. I'm also an actor and comedian in Los Angeles. And let me be clear, I have no special qualifications to do a podcast on the Beatles, except that I love the Beatles. I love them a lot, and I love the music they made a lot.
Now, a cast featuring four comedians talking about the Beatles. Great. What could possibly go wrong? The podcast started in 2017, and I'm reviewing episode 81. Give or take, they don't really seem to keep track. Um, The one I reviewed is called Now and Then, The Beatles' Last Song. It seems that the podcast is at the mercy of the panelists' work schedule, as this episode, released on November 4th, 2023, is the only episode they've released in 2023, and only two were released in 2022. The panel consisted of Will Hines, the original creator of the podcast, and his friends Brett, Katie, and Joel. In this cast, they wanted to give their reactions to Now and Then. They tell the background of the song, they debate the For Paul story of the writing on the tape, then they go off on a silly tangent that John might have meant for Paul Stanley from Kiss. They follow up that there were three songs on the tape, actually there were four. Then they can't figure out what Mal Technology stands for. Ugh. Will does have a great line when he says everyone asks him questions about the Beatles because he has a Beatles podcast and is therefore an expert. He said that that equates to printing your own college diploma and saying, I'm official. Ow. That really hits hard, since that's what I did. Let's get to the song. Will says it was underwhelming until he watched the documentary and the Peter Jackson video. And then he was transformed. And he thought, this song is great, and he was really moved. Katie seemed to agree with Will's sentiment, but thinks it's clear they didn't really work on it together. Yeah, that might have been difficult. She did say that she watched the documentary and it changed her feelings about the song. Joel was struck by the spareness in the song and stated the more he listens to it, the more he likes it, and he's so glad it exists. He considers the strings to be a beatly trope, and he doesn't like the decisions to make the song sound beatly, because it's nostalgic rather than groundbreaking, and the Beatles were always groundbreaking. Brett also talks about his journey of hearing the song and how it transformed his attitude. He says he's very familiar with the John demo. He says the more he listened to Now and Then and saw the videos, it really got to him. Brett really likes the way the song ends. I will say that I agree with all their comments. I feel exactly the same way. But it's a pity they didn't end the podcast right there. But instead they spend another 40 minutes just kinda not really saying anything. Should you listen to Screw It, we're just gonna talk about the Beatles? If I were making the call on this episode alone, and again, it's the only one that I've listened to, then it would be a hard no. But as I look over the topics of their other 80 or so episodes, I must admit I'm a bit intrigued, and after all, even though there was very little humor in this episode, they do preface the episode by saying they didn't really have any time to rehearse and prepare for the episode because they wanted it to be as relevant as Biafra. No, I'm the one who said as relevant as Biafra. Well, actually, I was quoting someone else. So let's give them a break and issue a no decision. Sometime in the near future, I will listen to another episode of Screw It, We're Just Going to Talk About the Beatles, and give you a review at that time. But for now, let's just screw it. Okay. There's this guy who gets lost in Ireland, and uh, it's the middle of the night, so he's looking for some sign of life, 
and he sees up on the hill he sees a little house with lights on so he follows this long fence up to the top of the hill and he realises it's a pub goes in the pub, it's completely empty except for the barman uh, so he goes up to the bar and he says um, pint of Guinness please the barman says certainly sir pint of Guinness and as he's pulling it he says did you notice that fence as you come up he says yeah I did nice, I followed it up actually nice straight fence he said I made that fence myself he said did they call me Jones the fence maker no so he gets his drink and he's starting to drink his Guinness and then the, the, the guy says uh, do you like this bar? that's solid mahogany that he said I made that myself so that's a very nice bar actually I said, you made that yourself? fantastic he said and do they call me Jones the bar maker? no oh, so, okay. he says what do you think of that what do you think of that Guinness? do you think I've pulled it well? He said, that's a very well-pulled pint. Yes, I love that. He said, do they call me Jones, the Guinness puller? No. He says, but you fuck one goat. Thank you for listening to I Am The Podman, a Beatles podcast review. I hope you have enjoyed the show. Please remember to like and subscribe. If you have a Beatles-related podcast that you would like me to review, please feel free to email me at IamThePodman at gmail.com. That's IamThePodman at gmail.com. Now it's time to say goodnight. Peace and love. Imagine.